And if you need a Bible, just uh, lift up your hand and the ushers will drop one off to you. You don't even have to get up and get it yourself. Now, I want to say this at the onset. You all know that I have the utmost respect for your time. (laughs) Especially at this part of the day, because once you start robbing people's minutes at this time of day, you're taking it directly away from their pillow, which is very unforgiving. I say that because I may go just a touch long tonight. But with, with respect to you, and, and, I, and I confidently say to you that, well, you know, I mean, I'm not going to make stuff up and just ramble, you know, but I believe that God has a message for his church tonight, and I believe that if you hear it, if you receive it, that it will change your life. Such an impacting truth that God has to share tonight. So just giving you the heads up ahead of time. Please don't throw things at me. I will wrap it up quickly if I can. Now I also need to repent before you. Because I sinned a sin that is common to preachers. And that is that last week I took one of the most revolutionary impacting and powerful principles in all of the New Testaments, and I crammed it into the last 15 minutes of a Bible study that was way too long. And so tonight, I would like to revisit the last 11 verses of Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, and, and, and look at this a little bit closer, because I believe that God has something uh, that He wants to share with us here. Now you remember that... In chapters 5 and 6, these closing chapters of the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is taking the precept of salvation by grace through faith and all of the doctrine that he shared with them concerning this powerful truth and he's applying it now to their lives. He's showing them how it fleshes out in their own personal Christian experience, this whole concept of being free from the burden of the law. Now, Paul spent four chapters, chapters one through four, proving to them beyond any doubt, thoroughly explaining that a believer in Jesus Christ is no longer under the law. Not under its demands and no longer under its penalty, but a believer in Christ is free from that. We're saved by His grace, not by anything that we have done or that we can do to earn it or or our performance. Now, here in this section of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is answering the question that would naturally arise in the heart of anybody who is, is seeking to understand that truth. And that question that he's answering is, how then do I use this freedom, or or how does it, what does it look like in my everyday Christian life? And so Paul sets forth three principles for them that we covered last week. Number one is that liberty from the law, or freedom, this freedom that we have in Christ, is not a license to indulge the flesh. Second of all, that liberty from the law enables me not restricts me or frees me from, but it actually enables me to lead a holy life. 
And then number three, that liberty from the law does not mean that there is no longer a battle against sin. And it's this third principle, this third thing that I want to revisit tonight and look at with you a little bit deeper as it is given to us here in these last verses of chapter 5. I want to expand on this concept of the ongoing battle between the flesh and the spirit. Now, I don't mean to be redundant, but for the sake of review, for those of you that were here and to kind of fill you in for those that perhaps weren't or didn't hear last week's study, I shared with you about the Old Testament character, this woman, Rebecca. How that she was the wife of Isaac, the daughter-in-law of Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, the first man that was ever saved by grace through faith, doctrinally, if you would. And how this woman, Rebecca, how three things happened to her. That first of all, she received. She received the promise of God that she would be the heir of the blessing of Abraham. And she received that promise and that as she was prayed for, she conceived, having been barren previously, she then conceived and was to give birth to a son that would be the fulfillment of the promise. So first of all, Rebecca received. After that, she then conceived. After receiving the promise, she then conceived this, this child within her. The blessing of God came upon her life. But then after receiving and conceiving, she was then confused. Because she had this blessing growing up inside of her. But yet it seemed as though there was a war going on. And so she went to her husband Isaac and she said, If this be the blessing of God, then why am I thus? Why is there this wrestling, this discomfort, this pain, this war within? And so Isaac goes to the Lord and the Lord says, Here's what's going on. Two nations shall be separated from her womb. There's two different nationalities, two different cultures, two different natures, if you would, that are growing up inside of her side by side. And one of those is stronger than the other. But, God said, the elder shall serve the younger. The recipe for a struggle. The stronger one is to be the subservient one. Not wanting to submit. Not wanting to secede control. Give up power. And so there's a war going on inside of her. Because these two natures are growing up inside of her. Now as Rebecca was the heir of Abraham's blessing, Paul in Galatians is making the case that we also, those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we also are heirs of the blessing of Abraham. That is, salvation by grace through faith. And like Rebecca, who first of all received the promise of God, we also receive, we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We recognize our need for salvation and we come to him on the terms of grace through faith. We surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and we receive the promise just like Rebecca does. That leads to the second thing and that is that we conceive. As she conceived within her and this this pregnancy began, so also the Bible says that something happens to us at the time that we receive the promise that is called we are born again. 
And that is that God moves in. Jesus Christ, literally, who had been outside knocking, he's received inside internally. And the Bible says that we are born again, not reformed. We don't become religious but rather we're transformed as the Holy Spirit of God moves into our life and begins His work. This germinated seed is planted within us and Jesus Christ begins to grow up inside of us. The presence of the Spirit of God living inside of us is what the Bible calls being born again. Not a denomination, not a sect, not something that we call ourselves, but it's something that happens to us at the time when Jesus Christ moves into our lives. So we receive the promise, we're conceived, and then we, like Rebecca, we are also confused. Because all of a sudden, the joy of salvation floods our soul. The power of God's Spirit is present within us. The truth of God is illuminated and opened, and we understand the Bible. Life begins to make sense. We understand where we came from, where we are, where we're going. The light is turned on, so to speak. And there's this incredible blessing as we appropriate the promise of God within our lives. But all of a sudden, we recognize, we realize that though we've been blessed, though we aren't what we once were, and though God is doing something so incredibly wonderful within our lives, yet there's this struggle that's beginning to take place. This spiritual agita, so to speak, this, this wrestling that's happening internally, this battle that's going on, and we, like Rebecca, we cry out and we say, if, if I be blessed, then why am I thus? This blessing, it's come upon my life, but why is there this struggle? Why is there this war? Why is there this constant give and take between the old and the new? And what's going on inside of me? You see? And so we are confused like Rebecca is. Because we're born again. But unfortunately, when Jesus Christ moves in, he doesn't replace the old nature that was in us before. But what he does is he moves in alongside of it. And all of a sudden, those of us that have been born again, we possess no longer one, but two natures. The nature of the old man, as the Bible calls it, or the flesh, or, you know, all of those things that the Bible calls it self, or the self-life. And we also have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us, or the Holy Spirit of God, or the Bible calls it the new man. And these two men literally are living inside of us side by side. Adam the first... Our nature that we inherited from Adam, this selfish nature, and the spirit of Christ that's given to us perfect in its holiness. And we experience that. We have, as Christians, two natures. On the one hand, we have the older, much stronger, fallen old man. He's selfish, self-centered. He's greedy, unruly, proud unthankful you know we were just talking about this with our our kids is that you know thankfulness is is not something that comes naturally when you grow up you know our our kids never automatically are thankful for what they have they take for granted as though they deserve it you know because that's the nature of the old man it, this is mine you know it's vindictive it doesn't like to be wrong it's boastful you know 
It's vain. It always is concerned about itself. This old man, this strong old nature that we have within us. All attributes that lead to the behavior that Paul describes in verses 19 through 21 of Galatians chapter 5 when he talks of the works of the flesh. The only thing that this flesh is capable of producing in and of itself, listed there, it says the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The old man, the selfish nature that we have, what we inherited from Adam, our first father, cannot be saved. It cannot be made holy. It cannot be reformed or cleansed or transformed in itself. It is good for nothing but to die. That's it. It cannot inherit the kingdom of God, this old man. Now, the second nature that is given to those that have been born again, the new man that moves inside at the time a person comes to Christ. It's not a reformed version of the old. See, that's what the law does. The law reforms behavior. It modifies the behavior or the attributes of what is, but it cannot change it. It can only teach it, you see. It's not a reformed version of the old, but it's a completely new nature that moves inside of us. The Spirit of God moves in and brings with it the nature of Christ with it. Everything that we see when we look at Jesus, everything that's described in verses 21 or 22 and 23 here in chapter 5, when it speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, that is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against such things there is no law. See, the old man that's corrupt according to its affections and lusts, and the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and in true holiness. And these two things live in us side by side. Now, the glory of it is that we're saved. Our sins are forgiven. We have the favor and the blessing of God upon our lives. We have His promise. Eternal salvation has been given to us, not by anything that we have done, but by our simple believing and having faith in Jesus Christ. That's the glory. But the problem is, is that we have these two diametrically opposite natures living inside the same very small space at the same time. And that they do not agree with each other nor get along with each other. That's what Paul says in verse 17. He says, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would he describes this wrestling this war much like what rebecca felt physically as jacob and esau were hashing it out in the womb we experience spiritually as Christ in us, the hope of glory, grows up side by side of this old, wretched, good-for-nothing flesh. These two things opposing each other. Now, 
I shared this last week, and again, I will say, inside of that small, compacted space where those two natures live and are growing together, there are furnished there two things, a cross and a throne. And the rules of the house are the same as musical chairs. When the music stops, everyone's got to have a place. And so at any given time, one of those two natures is occupying the throne, the seat of authority within us. And the other is occupying the cross, the place of yielding, the place of death, and the place of shame. And if the flesh, this old man, this corrupt nature that we inherited from Adam is in control of our lives, then that leaves the spirit of Christ, the presence of Christ, to be left upon the cross, yielding, waiting, in the background, kept suppressed, not coming forth, leaving us under the struggles of the flesh listed in verses 19 through 21. But, if Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, is given his place upon the throne of our lives, the throne of our hearts, then that leaves this old man, the flesh, to be nailed to that cross where it is kept under, where it is destroyed, its power is broken and decimated, and the Spirit of Christ is free to rule and reign within our lives, leaving us to enjoy the fruit that's listed in verses 22 and 23 there in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now the conflict that we experience, the confusion we face, the wrestling that goes on is this. Ready? Both of those natures want the throne. Real bad. To compound that problem, this flesh, this old man, just as Esau was the stronger of the two brothers, the flesh is stronger than the spirit, and you know when it usurps and grabs that authority, it's much easier to allow the flesh to rule and reign within our lives. Making the problem compounded. Now, Here's where it goes deeper. Because whoever is seated upon the throne of your life, whoever is ruling and reigning in your heart at any given time, whether it be the old man according to its lusts and affections, or whether it be the new man created in righteousness and holiness, they are going to rule according to their personality. Each of those two natures has its own personality. Now let me paint for you a portrait of these personalities. The flesh, this old man that lives inside of us, he always wants what's best for himself or herself. The flesh always seeks its own comfort and its own well-being. It always wants to be gratified and satisfied. The flesh always wants to have the upper hand in any and all given situations. The flesh always wants its rights and its entitlements respected and adhered to. The flesh wants to be well-liked, well-spoken of, and highly esteemed in the opinions of others. It wants due credit for its achievements and accomplishments. The flesh, by very nature, is a go-getter. The flesh is willing to strive and to push to make things happen its own way. And the flesh is willing to abase and abuse others in order to establish or to maintain its cause. 
And if any of those fleshly fundamentals are violated during a time when the flesh is seated upon the throne, then the flesh responds, because of its very nature and personality, with frustration, with impatience, with discouragement, despondency, with agitation, rebellion, hatred, force, violence, withdrawal. Much like the things that we read of in verses 19 to 21, isn't it? Works of the flesh. The flesh is only satisfied or contented when it gets exactly what it wants. And if the stars are lined up right and this flesh is gratified and does get exactly what it wants, it is never thankful. It simply looks now forward to the next conquest, the next thing, the next point of gratification whereunto it can attain for itself, never looking with gratefulness for anything that it receives. Romans chapter six or chapter eight, verse six, the apostle Paul describes it this way. He says, To be carnally or fleshly minded is death. In chapter 8, verse 13, he says, For if you live after the flesh, the result will be that you shall die. It's not a condemnation, it's just a natural consequence. Because of the very nature and personality of the flesh, and because it cannot get what it wants, it cannot control all things, in frustration and anger and bitterness, it will eventually choke itself even to death. That is that nature of that old man that lives within us. Now, on the contrary, the new man, the spirit of Christ that's within us, he also has a very separate personality. He is not so much concerned about himself. He he operates primarily by the joy principle. The joy principle is simply an acronym, J-O-Y. It means Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. The personality of the Spirit is that he's much more concerned about the will of God than he is about anything else. After that, way after that, he's concerned, second of all, with the well-being and the comfort of others. And then finally, when it's fitting, to take care of its own needs. That's the personality of the Spirit. The Spirit is not opposed to comfort. It's, It's not wrong. But he's willing to suffer. The Spirit of God, the person of Christ, is willing to set aside his own well-being and his own gratification because the need is maybe for something else or for someone else. The Spirit takes the position that it has no rights. It doesn't have any of its own entitlements. And it doesn't demand to be respected. The Spirit doesn't need the upper hand in a situation. It's willing to trust God for the outcome of it, no matter what it is. The Spirit will never strive or push to have its own way, but rather the Spirit is willing to just wait patiently. The Spirit doesn't require praise or credit for its accomplishments and the things that it does. And because the Spirit doesn't seek its own cause, it will never abuse or abase anyone in order to get it. Now, the ironic thing about the Spirit's personality is that it cannot be violated. See, the flesh can be violated because it cannot get its own way, but because of the nature of the Spirit, it it, it cannot be violated. How can you violate perfect patience? How can you violate something that suffers long and is kind? How can you violate someone that has no rights? 
The spirit can't be violated in that very core. So if the spirit is usurped in any way or undercut or suppressed or pushed back, it doesn't respond with frustration and anger and bitterness and hatred like the flesh does, but rather it responds with patience. It's willing to endure it. It responds with faith, trusting that God's in control of all things and that he's going to work it out. It responds with love because it's genuinely concerned with the well-being of others, even its enemies, over itself. Wow, it sounds a whole lot like the list there in verses 22 and 23, doesn't it? These diametrically opposed personalities living within us. And the result of the Spirit's way, Romans chapter 8, verse 6 again, the first half was to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. In Romans 8.13, Paul goes on, he says, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the flesh or of the body, then you shall live. See, the outcome of the flesh sitting, ruling and reigning upon the throne is always going to be death. But the outcome of the Spirit of Christ ruling and reigning within anybody is always going to be life. Now, whoever is sitting upon the throne of your heart at any given moment has control of your life. There's no other way around it. You can't disguise it. You can't hide it. You can't lie about it. Whoever is on the throne is going to control your life and it's going to rule according to their nature. Do you understand? Now, I just shared with you the nature of the flesh and the nature of the spirit. If the flesh, the old man, is sitting upon the ruling seat, wearing the crown within your life, and is calling the shots, is driving the car, then he is going to rule according to his nature. So let me explain. This is a very familiar scene for us, you know, because we have a newborn. But there you are. It's only an hour into that beauty rest, you know, the solid seven, the solid eight that you're going to receive. And all of a sudden, a cry is heard from the bedroom down the hall. You know, that shriek. And for that split second, you hope that perhaps it was just a false alarm. He's going back to sleep. But really, you realize that that moment of silence is just him taking a deeper breath for the second shriek, you know. And all of a sudden, it comes. Now listen, if the flesh is on the throne, if the spirit is on the throne, those two personalities are going to handle that situation in completely different ways. See, the flesh is going to respond to that immediately with frustration. I can't believe this might come out of the flesh's mouth at that time. I need a full night of sleep. When is this child going to sleep through the night? Now, why does the flesh respond that way? Because by very nature, the flesh seeks its own comfort, its own well-being. The flesh wants always to have the upper hand in every situation, and that is not the upper hand, Riley. No. <laughs> Georgia gets up with him, you know. I, I'm just speaking for her tonight, you know. The flesh feels entitled to the solid seven, the solid eight hours of sleep. That's what doctors say that we need, Lord. Don't you know that, you know? And so the flesh is going to handle that situation according to its nature. 
And the result of the flesh handling that is that there's going to be an angry or frustrated disposition. I'll fling the blanket back over and kick it off with my leg, you know, and roll myself out of bed and stomp down the hall, you know, and then... What is it now, love of my life, you know? And, and there's a sarcastic, frustrated response, you know, as you take care of the needs of this child. That's going to be the result of it. Now, how does the spirit handle that situation? If the spirit is on the throne in the life of a person, how does the spirit handle it? Well, the spirit doesn't mind losing sleep for the sake of taking care of someone else. The spirit is more concerned about the well-being of the child, the wellness of the child, than of the, the self-life. The spirit trusts that God is in control of the clock. And the spirit yields to the fact that it cannot control what this child needs and what this child is doing. And so, therefore, the spirit will accept the situation. It will embrace it with acceptance. It will patiently endure the interruption in the sleep. And then the result of it is that the spirit will be able to sincerely love and take care of the child and minister to its needs. To selflessly give and serve without the need for any appreciation or applause. And the spirit will experience peace and true life gratification because they're, they're able to serve and to give with their life rather than to inwardly think about what they're losing themselves. It's a completely different situation, outcome, based upon who is seated upon the throne in that time. How about the marital conflict? Now, there are three biggies. You can ask any pastor who has people in the office. There are three major reasons why you have people in the counseling office. Money, control, and sex. Those are, yeah, I mean, and, and it's kind of like the big blanket. You can fit them all somewhere in there, and you can apply it to your own marriage. But here's the, the thing. Here's the marriage conflict and how it comes up. Before the conflict, or the conflict comes, the issue arises, who is on the throne? Now, the flesh, these are the rules. The flesh wants its way regardless. The flesh has rights, see? According to the marriage vows... According to what Oprah says, or Dr. Phil, I have rights in this marriage. I have a stake in this thing, and therefore I have a right to have my way seen through in this. The flesh keeps score. It keeps a record of what's been said and what's been done in the past, and the flesh will strive and fight for the upper hand in the conflicting situation. And so therefore, when the issue arises, when the thing comes up, the flesh will roll up its sleeves. And the flesh will say, I've been waiting for this. The flesh has been having an argument with itself in the car the whole day. When she says this, I'm going to say this. And then she's going to probably say that, but I'm going to say this. And, and, and I'm going to prove that I'm right in this thing. And she's finally going to see that I'm reasonable, you know. As if I can reason with her, you know, or something, kind of a thing. And so the flesh rolls up its sleeves, it's going through all these things, and then what happens is the conflict comes, the words are spoken, the battle begins, and it escalates to the next level. And the result of that conflict is that if the flesh can't get what it wants, then it's going to result in hatred, it's going to result perhaps in violence, perhaps divorce, perhaps unfaithfulness. Because the flesh will never give in to see someone else's side of a thing. It demands its own respect, its own rights, its own comfort, its own well-being. 
It's a totally different story if the Spirit is sitting on the throne when that conflict comes, when that issue arises. The Spirit wants peace regardless. The Spirit strives for reconciliation and for well, you know, wellness in the home and in the family. The Spirit is willing to lay down its rights. It doesn't remember the battles of the past or keep notes to use in the future. It doesn't need the upper hand. The Spirit knows, hey, listen, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And so when the issue comes and one partner starts to tie on those boxing gloves, you know, and here comes the conflict, the Spirit immediately takes the cross up and says, surrender. Not not willing to fight in this thing. It takes the mindset of Christ, who Philippians chapter 2 so powerfully and so convictingly tells us that he was God, that he was in the form of God. He held all of the authority, all of the righteousness, all of the power, and all of the universe. And yet it says that he humbled himself and that he took on the nature of a slave. Think about that. God Almighty who had every right to be anything and to do anything, to win all battles and destroy all men, the one who possessed perfect righteousness in the presence of perfect filth, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. But he didn't stop there. It tells us that he became obedient even to the point of death, the death of the cross. That he was willing to go not forward into battle, but he retreated into surrender. And he allowed his guilty, filthy, wicked creation to crucify him. And from that place he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is the very nature of the spirit that moves inside of us. And if that spirit is seated upon the throne at the time that that conflict arises, then that will be the disposition that that person will take. You're right. You know what? I was wrong. But I'm not wrong. No, no. Listen. Jesus was not wrong. There was never anyone more right in all of the universe, and yet he willingly looked at mankind and he said, you know what? I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'll take the nails. And what happens when the spirit handles that situation rather than the flesh is that the situation is immediately diffused. It opens the door for reconciliation. It starts the process of self-examination where the side that says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you're, you're not going to fight? You're not going to, what's, what's going on? And, and, and in the quiet time, that person will begin to say, well, are they right? Could it be? The result will be peace in the home. The principle applies to any situation. It could be the conflict that you have with a coworker. The person that stole your idea or stole your invention or is sitting in the office that is rightfully yours. The flesh and the spirit are going to handle that in two completely different ways. The situation at the church that's just grinding at you. The fact that such and such was said or such and such was done or that such and such was tapped on the back for that or whatever it is. The spirit and the flesh are going to handle that in two completely different ways. The unsettled life situation. You find yourself unemployed, underemployed. 
employed and you hate it. You know, any of those things, you find yourself unsettled. The spirit and the flesh are going to handle that in two completely different ways. The one is going to lead you down a road of frustration, anger, discontentment, and will end in death. It will feel like death spiritually. The other will leave you with hope, with joy, with faith, with life and peace. And you'll see the salvation, the leading of the Lord as he does it. Now, whoever's on the throne, no matter what the situation is, whoever is on the throne will, be, will determine how the situation is handled and it will determine the outcome. If the flesh is sitting upon the throne of your life, then your life will ultimately be described by the things that are listed in verses 19 through 21 there in chapter 5. But on the contrary, if the Spirit handles it, the outcome will be listed in verses 22 and 23. And that is why Paul says to the Galatian church, speaking to them about living a life in the Spirit, a life of joy, a life in Christ. In verse 16, he says this, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In verse 18, he says, if you are led of the Spirit. The second thing that he tells them is that they are to be led of the Spirit, not just to walk in it, but also to be led of it. And then in verse 25, he caps it off by saying, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So three things he tells us. He tells us to walk in the Spirit. He tells us be led of the Spirit. And he tells us to live in the Spirit. Well, I know what you're thinking as you're sitting there in your seat. How? Because the flesh is strong, isn't it? It's, it's a powerful enemy that we have within us. So how do we do these things? How do we walk in the Spirit? How are we led by it? How do we live in it? The answer is given in verse 24. He says that they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh. That means nailed it to the cross with its affections and its lusts. In Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, Paul puts it this way. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, then you shall live. Now, we're moving from the conflict to the solution here in our Bible study. The solution to this problem of walking in the flesh versus walking in the Spirit. How do I find myself? Because I've got to be honest with you. If I'm really honest with myself, then I have to say that a lot of the day, I know who's sitting upon the throne, and it isn't the one who brings life and peace. When I'm there in that traffic jam, or when that unsettled thought comes into my mind about the past, present, or future, oftentimes I find I discover that, hey, the flesh has dominated. It's taken that place again upon that throne. So how is this done? Now here, follow me through this. Because I'm going to share with you the great paradox. This is the great paradox of the Christian life. Are you ready? Here it is. We come, us, those of us that are saved, we come to Jesus Christ because we're awakened to the depravity, the corruption, the inability of ourselves to save ourselves or lead ourselves. And so we come to Christ. We say, Lord. What, what does it say? It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Do you hear what you just said? Does the Lord belong on the throne or the cross? 
the throne in our lives, right? And that's what we're saying. We come to him and we say, I want you to be my Lord. And that is the, the prayer of salvation. Be the Lord. Sit upon the throne of my life. And we make that decision because we recognize the corruption of our flesh. And so we choose to say, Jesus, you be the Lord of my life. Take the throne, take the wheel, whatever it is that you want to say. And here's the paradox. That although we have this grand coronation at the time of our salvation, and we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, the flesh that invited him in is very reluctant to give up control. Have you noticed that? The flesh likes to have control over our lives and to rule and reign from its standpoint and in its personality. Now, Jesus is very patient by very nature. He doesn't usurp. He doesn't dominate. He doesn't wield the sword. He simply waits. He's willing to wait upon that cross within our... Think of that. That the very person of God is alive within our hearts and he's content to hang upon the cross there. What incredible grace, what incredible patience. As he waits for our flesh to burn itself out or run itself down or do whatever it's going to do, he simply waits there upon that cross. But here's what happens. The flesh knows that it's messed up. I mean, you know you're messed I hope you know you're messed up. I hope there's no one here going, you know, I'm, I am good. You know, because you're just lying to yourself. You have no clue who you are. You're like a person who looks in the mirror and then forgets, you know, what you look like. We're messed up in our flesh. We're messed up to the core. And our flesh knows it, but our flesh doesn't want to give up control. So here's what our flesh does. This is what you do, and I do this too. This is what we do. We call Jesus into the conference room, and we say, let's talk. And we lay everything down and we say, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to stay upon the throne. I'm going to rule and reign because I know how things work in this world. And so I'm going to rule and reign, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hang a WWJD sign. What would Jesus do? And I'm going to hang a WWJD sign. I'll even put it around the wrist so that the eye gate sees it. It's in the heart. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to rule, but I'm going to rule like you would. I'm going to filter everything I do, everything I think, everything I say through the lens of this WWJD and everything will be okay. So you just wait over there. And I'm going to sit here, but I'm going to rule and reign according as you would have me to rule and reign. Now, the problem is that the flesh cannot change its nature. It can modify or disguise its behavior, but it cannot change its nature. And so the pushy, demanding, selfish, cruel, proud, perverted self is now going to begin to act like Jesus. And there is nothing more frustrating in all of the world than trying to be something you're not. And for that reason, there are thousands, if not millions, of frustrated Christians living upon the planet today because they're simply trying to live the life of the Spirit in the power of the flesh. And it cannot be done. What would Jesus do is just another form of the old law. 
simply conforming to a behavior model and not being transformed by the power of the Spirit of Christ within or living in that supernatural life. So how is it done? Because, you know, that's what I recognize in me. That's what I do. I put on this thing. I'm going to put on Christ. I'm going to act like Jesus. I'm going to say what would Jesus do. I'm going to take a deep breath. But what happens is I'm frustrated. Because on the outside, I'm acting like Jesus. But on the inside, I'm burning with rage. God bless you. You just cut me off. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for completely ignoring everything I just said. You know, and this sarcasm squeezes out through my Jesus facade, you know, as the real nature within me is still absolutely in control. And I know that because of my response and what's going on internally. But outwardly, I'm trying to put on something else. And, you know, most people just quit. They're Christians for a while and they say, you know what, that Christian thing isn't for me. Why? Because they're just following the law. They're simply packaging it up a different way, trying to reform and fix this corrupt, perverted flesh that can't be fixed and, and, and corrected. It cannot be done. So how is it done? How do we crucify the flesh? Because Paul makes it sound so easy. He's just kind of like, yeah, just crucify the flesh. Yeah, I've tried that. Have you ever tried to crucify yourself? You get one nail in and then what? How is it done? (laughs) It's not what would Jesus do. It's not filtering everything that happens through this thought process of how do I do this in a biblical way. But it is a decision that we make. It's a split second decision that we make when a situation arises or when a thought comes into our mind or when something happens during the course of a day. Not what would Jesus do, but the thought is who is going to handle this? Do you see the difference? Because you could almost say, well, it's the same thing. No, it's not. It's not the same thing for the flesh to say, what would Jesus do for me to stand back and say, who am I going to let sit on the throne in this situation? See, who's going to handle it? At that moment when the thing comes up, a decision is made where I declare, I say, not I, but Christ. Jesus, you do this. Not, Jesus, what would you do? And I'll do it. But Jesus, you do this. See, Lord, bid me to come out on the water with you, Peter said, as Jesus was there walking on the water in the third watch of the night. And Jesus said, okay, Peter, And at that moment, Peter had a decision to make. Am I going to step out of the boat and do something that is scientifically impossible? Or am I going to say, nah, never mind, psych. (laughs) Great idea, but that's water. I ain't doing it. No, 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 no. Peter had a decision to make. He had to choose in himself if he would be able to keep his eyes fixed upon Jesus and allow Jesus to do something supernaturally in him that would allow him to do the impossible. And Peter made a choice to step out of the boat, and when he made the choice to do it, he found that 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 yielding surface became unyielding, and he was able to do something that previously he would never have been able to do. And the same thing is true for you and I. At that moment that the crying child bursts out into tears in the middle of the night, or that marital conflict arises for the 17th time this week, or that coworker's face is in my mind again and I can't get it out, at that moment you have a split-second decision to make. 
Not I, but Christ. Jesus, you handle the situation. And then you step out of the boat. Not putting on something that's fake, but simply allowing the power of the Spirit of Christ. This glory, think of this, the glory of the invisible God is alive within you. And he says that he will empower you to do his will in your life. And you get to experience it as you simply walk in that humble obedience of saying, Jesus, you do this. And so you approach that situation not with your effort and your strategy or your biblical authority, but you let the power of Christ simply do it within you. And what you find is that he shows up and gives you the ability, the power. He replaces frustration with love. He replaces your demanding rights with his yielding peace. And you find yourself not acting something on the outside and burning within of something completely different. But you're living the power of Christ within your life. It's the glory of God living within us. Once you choose, like Peter, to step out of the boat and then trust that he's going to take over and then letting him do it, you immediately watch as anxiety within your heart begins to dissolve. Frustration dissipates. Anger is calmed. Bitterness turns sweet, turns into love. And self-pity turns into joy. And you're experiencing the power of Christ in you. See, people think that the power of the Holy Spirit is to be able to speak in tongues. That's the sign. That's the sign. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you speak in tongues. That's how you know. No, 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 no. That's not how you know you have the Holy Spirit. You know how you know you have the Holy Spirit? is when dinner is finished, and you don't just go watch the Yankees, but you say, can I clean up? And you're not doing it going, oh, God, I want to watch the Yankees. I can't believe I said that. That was the worst thing ever. But no, you know what? I feel like God would, that's what, that's what the Spirit of God is prompting me to do, and I'm, I just want God to take over in my life. And so you serve your wife. You take care of the things around the house. And, and here's the thing. Here's how you know it's the Spirit of God. Because you have joy doing it. You're not wishing that you were doing something else. And when you're finished, you're not going, (laughs) I did it. You're not taking glory for it. You just say, no, it's not I, but Christ. It takes more of the Holy Ghost to wash the dishes than it does to preach a sermon or to lift someone out of a wheelchair to do some incredible work for God. People say all the time, well, John chapter whatever says that Jesus said that we would do greater works than him because he goes to his father. Greater works than these. Greater works than walking on water. Greater works than feeding 5,000. I don't see the church doing great. Listen, you show me someone who's filled with the spirit of God that's letting Jesus Christ rule and reign in your life. And that person is doing greater works than feeding multitudes and casting out demons and raising the dead. Because they're letting the power of the spirit of the living God rule and reign in their life. And they're experiencing the life of Christ. And that is an infinitely more miraculous work. To see the flesh nailed upon the cross. Than to see some act of ministry accomplished or done. When you and I begin, and here we are drawing to our close. Drawing to our close. (laughs) When you and I begin to live the crucified life, the spirit-filled life, as the Bible is describing to us here, two things happen as a result of living that life. First of all, 
we begin to experience fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ personally. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul used language that has been so confusing to me at times in my life. Where he's talking about all the things, all the credentials that he had in his flesh and how he counts those things as rubbish. In verse 10 he says, that I, that I may know him. The purpose of his life, the thing that drove him, he says, that I might know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Do you see those two things tied together right there? The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. See, what were the, fel- what were the sufferings of Christ? It's that he was God. He, counted, he thought it not robbery to be called equal with God, and yet he humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant. He was almighty God, filled with light, perfect light, blinding light, and yet it was clothed and masked with human flesh. He was able to do miraculous things. And yet for the sake of serving and obeying the will of his father, he would say, shh, tell no man who I am. And then he would allow his vile, corrupt creation to nail him to a cross while he hung there and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when you and I begin to live the crucified life, laying down our rights, taking up our cross, Letting the Spirit rule and reign in our life, we enter into the fellowship of His suffering. Do you understand? Because sometimes you are right. Sometimes you are being undercut. Sometimes life isn't fair. But are you really going to be able to look at Jesus Christ one day and say, you know what, it really wasn't fair? As you see Him there in heaven with the holes in His hands and the wound in His side scars that he had. The fellowship of his suffering produces the power of his resurrection within your life. And so when you choose to live the crucified life and allow the Spirit to rule and reign within you, you begin to experience fellowship and communion with the living Christ. And see, that's where life is. What does John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say? That in the beginning, you know, he said that life was manifested. That we held it, we beheld it, we touched it. It was full of glory, this life that he had. And we have the opportunity to experience this communion, this life with Jesus. The second thing that we experience when we live the crucified life is we experience effectiveness in our service to him. Effectiveness in our service to him. We just finished going through the life of Samson with our kids, you know, in their nighttime little Bible story thing that, they, that we have before they go to sleep. And, and it was so fun to go through because Samson's just such a, a great story. He was a man that had incredible purpose, incredible gifts, incredible talents, incredible strength, doing feats that no one else could do, lifting up the gates of a city and walking them up a hill just for fun, you know. The power that this man possessed and the plan that God had for his life. But he was a man who was filled with the Spirit, but yet couldn't get control over his flesh. He was dominated. This man of great strength was too weak to crucify his own flesh. And the result of this man who had so much purpose is that he ends up at the end of his life with his eyes gouged out. 
walking with chains, binding his feet, walking in a circle in the prison, grinding grapes or olives at the grinding bowl. That's where he ends up and he spends the heart of his life, the part of his life where he should be under the blessing of God, the power of God, the the fruit pouring out of his life, the, the authority that God gave him with the people. All of that should have been happening, but instead he's blind, he's bound, and he's grinding at the mill because he couldn't get control of his flesh. And the saddest verse in all of Samson's story is in Judges chapter 16, verse 30, because at the very end of his life, as he's there chained to the two pillars, while all of the Philistines are just mocking him and making fun of him, he prays this prayer and he says, Lord, strengthen me but this one last time that I might be avenged upon the Philistines. And he pulls with all of his might, and the pillars of the temple crash, and all of the Philistines that are there that day are killed, and Samson is killed along with them. And the saddest verse of his life is Judges chapter 16, verse 30. It says this. Listen carefully. So the dead that he slew at his death were more than they which he slew with his life. Listen carefully, because this is the message That Samson was more effective in his service towards God in one day of death than he was in all the rest of his life. He accomplished more of what God was seeking to do through him in one day dead than in a whole lifetime of serving God in his strength and in his flesh. The same thing is true for you and I, saints. We're called to die. We're called to take up our cross and follow Christ. We're called to mortify the deeds of the body and live. We're called to be spiritually minded. And the result of answering that call and allowing the Spirit of Christ to rule and reign within our lives is that there will be effectiveness in our service because God cannot bless the work of your flesh. The things that you think of, oh, I'm going to serve God this way and I'm going to express my talents towards Him. It's useless to God. But the effort I'm putting forth, it's got to be fruitful. No, 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 no. Listen. The Bible declares that all things are of Him, means it originates with Him. Through Him, that means He gives you the strength and the power to do it. And for Him, that means He gets the glory when it's accomplished. It has nothing to do with you or I. It isn't until we die that we begin to experience the power of Christ living within us. And then, one day, one day, dead, we can accomplish more for Christ than in a whole lifetime of serving God in the power of our flesh. Well, I'll leave you with this poem. And I will give you rest, so said my Lord. I heard his word. I started, sighed. Dear Lord, I cried. My heart is sick and sore. No peace dwells in my breast. Give me this guest, thy rest, forevermore. With tender instant touch out of my heart, the sting, the smart, the secret native source of pain he drew and held it up to view. I looked, the smart, the sting, was self, the deadly thing, forthwith I knew. Wilt thou, said he, consent to part with this, the bane of bliss? Peace cannot dwell within if self is there. 
Dear Lord, I quick replied, I see. If self is slain, my loss is glorious gain. Self I resign to thee. He smiled a gracious smile, and with a breath smote self to death. And then, surprising sweet, he entered in. Himself my peace, my rest from sin. He is my other self, and I serve him alone in free captivity, delighting in his wondrous discipline. Father, we just thank you tonight that you lay this truth out for us so clear, so plain. That you give to us the keys to life. You help us to understand and know that it is you that works in us. It is you that gives us life. That the only thing this flesh can be is dead. The only thing this flesh can produce is death. And so we ask tonight, Lord, at the close of this time, where your light has shined upon our hearts, that you would help each one of us to understand and see who it is that's been ruling and reigning within us. That you would help us to apply the principles, the truths that we've heard tonight. And that, Lord, where we have been struggling, trying, promising, trying to filter actions and thoughts, seeking to live the Christian life in the power of our flesh. Father, we just pray and ask that right now, even as the person who wrote this poem said, please, smite this self to death. We ask, Father, that you would do it. That by the power of your spirit within us, you would give us the ability to step out of the boat. To like Peter did, to walk on water and to find ourselves being carried through the things that we can't do ourselves. Whatever those things might be. Help us to receive the exhortation, Lord, to walk in the spirit. That is the things that we do, our actions, may they be governed by you. Lord, that you would help us to be led of the Spirit. That the things that we think, the plans that we make, the goals that we have, that they would be ordained and carried through by you. And that you would help us live in the Spirit. That not just our steps and not just our thoughts, but every area of our life would be controlled by you. I know, Lord, that there's some here tonight that are so strong financially, so wise and so able to make things happen. And yet that strength keeps them from yielding that part of their life to you. There's some that are strong in their marriage, and for that reason they have yet to yield their marriage to you. I would pray tonight, Lord, for every person here that we would love you and trust you enough that we would yield every area of our lives to you. That we would be able to humbly say, not I, but Christ. That we would be so filled with your love, so filled with your your spirit. That we might lay down all before you. And that you would take up your place upon the throne of our heart 
we might experience the power of the Christian life. Give us wisdom. Give us your help. As we sing this last song, the pastors will be at the front of the church. If you're here tonight and the Holy Spirit has spoken to you and you just, you're frustrated. Or you're tired living the Christian life in the power of your flesh. Or this has just been a point of reminder to you. You want us to pray for you that God would again just fill you with the Spirit. We'll be here to pray for you. Just come forward during the last song. The rest of you can filter out as you, you know, feel led of the Spirit. Let's sing together.